The True Crime Society podcast contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If you'd like to skip the intro, please refer to the timestamp listed in the episode description. Thank you. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. It is October 26th right now, Thursday here. And I know people don't always love hearing us talk about the weather, but it is hot here in New York. It is 79 degrees today. It's going to be like 80 again over the weekend. It is almost November. This is global warming for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember like so many years growing up, a Halloween, it was freezing. I would have been so happy in my earlier 20s wearing um, skimpy outfits for it to have been this warm for Halloween. Mm. I feel like here it's always getting warm. So we're coming out of the cold and I'm like, you've got to think about it because it might be cool now. But when we actually get to Halloween, it's usually pretty hot. Yeah. wonder. Eh actual halloween i think it still says the high here is only gonna be 49 and rainy so pretty crappy so everyone should celebrate this weekend instead (laughs) so today we'll just get into it because this one will probably be kind of long i feel like we say that a lot but this one is natalie holloway so there's a lot going on i'm sure most people have heard of the story before but we were saying it is like an older case now where maybe people who are a little bit younger or have only gotten into true crime recently might not know as much about it. And even if you did follow it back then, like Olivia and I were saying, we've heard of it, we've followed it, but it's been so many years now that you forget so much of the story. So there's been recent developments that put it back in the news and there has been confessions and all that. So we thought maybe it would be good to do a refresher and we haven't done an older case for a while, like an older big case. So, And this is such a massive case. What we've tried to do is we've tried to kind of pick out the parts that actually are applicable to the story. There's a lot of noise and a lot of, you know, sensationalizing yeah and mess so you know there are parts we haven't included but I don't really think they the ones that we have left out make kind of an impact on the story or even are related in the end like at the time when they were happening maybe but now they have turned out to not be related so we have left out some of the things just to try and make this as concise and as easy to understand as possible yeah there there are so many people who tried to profit off this case, get their name in this case, just be connected. It, there's a lot of a lot of scummy people have come to this case, so we tried to keep it only to the the main scummy people who seem to be involved at this point. Tonight, nearly two decades after Natalie Holloway vanished during a school trip in Aruba, the suspect at the center of her case, Joran Vandersloot, confessing. Today, I can tell you with certainty that after 18 years, Natalie's case. It's solved. Yaron Vandersloot is no longer the suspect in my daughter's murder. He is the killer. Holloway last seen leaving a bar in Aruba with Vandersloot in May 2005. 
Court documents show the Dutch national now telling investigators the two were kissing each other on the beach. When she refused his further advances, Vandersloot bludgeoned her with a cinder block laying on the beach, then disposed of her body in the ocean before walking home. In an interview today, Holloway's mother Beth telling ABC News the family's nightmare is over. It's a very victorious day to, to reach this point in a long journey. Vandersloat's apparent admission part of a plea deal in a federal extortion case accusing him of demanding $250,000 from Beth Holloway in 2010 in exchange for information about her daughter. Before receiving his 20-year sentence in federal court today, Vandersloat apologizing to Holloway's family, saying in part, I am not the same kind of person today as I was then. I have given my heart to Jesus Christ. But tonight, Natalie's father, Dave Holloway, releasing a statement saying Vandersloat is evil personified. Natalie was 18 when she vanished while she was on a graduation trip to Aruba in 2005, and her remains have never been found. Natalie was born on October 21st, 1986 in Memphis, Tennessee. Her parents are Dave and Elizabeth Holloway. Elizabeth goes by Beth, so we will call her Beth. Her parents got divorced in 1993, and she and her younger brother, Matthew, were raised by their mother. So in 2000, Beth married George Jug Twitty. He is a prominent Alabama businessman. And the family moved to Mountain Brook, Alabama. Then I met Jug and married Jug in 2000 and moved to Mountain Brook, Alabama. It's a beautiful community. These were people who were comfortable. They were Mercedes, they were BMWs, they were corporate executives. They were wealthier than most of us. And Natalie was entering into junior high school. She made friends right away and fit in right away. Natalie was a beautiful girl, involved in the church, always had a smile on her face, always so happy and energetic and, and outgoing. They called her Hootie. There's Hootie. <laughs> so Hootie Who Holloway. Who, who's our special guest today? It's Hootie. Hootie Who Holloway. Hi, friend. Just, you know, sitting in the back, cruising over to my place. The beach was a blast. I had the best time of my life. Natalie was so remarkable. If she set a goal, she did it. Natalie graduated with honors in May 2005 from Mountain Brook High School, located in Birmingham, Alabama. She was a member of the National Honor Society and the school dance squad. She had plans to attend the University of Alabama on a full scholarship and she planned to pursue a pre-med track. On May 26, 2005, Natalie traveled to Aruba with 124 other Mountain Brook High School graduates. They were starting an unofficial graduation trip. The teenagers were accompanied by seven chaperones. It was Memorial Day in 2005, and my phone rang from a number that I didn't recognize. They tell me that my daughter Natalie is missing and that no one has seen her. Natalie and her class were doing a senior trip to Aruba. Of course, as a parent, you worry sending your child out into the world for the first time alone, but they were promised chaperones, so you expect that your child is going to be watched. It was a way to celebrate the fact that they made it through high school and had their lives in front of them. 
Aruba is considered to be a very safe, beautiful Caribbean island. For a lot of Americans, Aruba does not feel that foreign, and that's part of its appeal. When you go down the strip, there's a Carlos and Charlie's, there's a Marriott, there's a Holiday Inn. I mean, blink and you could really feel like you were in Fort Lauderdale. She mentioned that they were planning a senior graduation trip to Aruba. I've never heard of Aruba. It's not like I'm gone four days. Okay. Just as some background for anyone unfamiliar with Aruba, it's a constituent country of the Kingdom of the Netherlands, physically located in the mid-south of the Caribbean Sea, about 29 kilometers or 18 miles north of the Venezuelan peninsula of, of Paraguana and 80 kilometers or 50 miles northwest of Curaçao. The population is around 106,000, and the climate is relatively warm and sunny all year around. Basically, just a tropical, beachy place, right? I've never been there. Yeah, yeah. It is. I feel like, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I was going to like a lot of cruises yeah. go there. Yeah, it's a very touristy destination, very warm, very just a nice, pleasant climate. So the group, they were all staying at, an ho- at a Holiday Inn. The police commissioner, Gerald Dompig, who he was the head of the investigation from like mid-2005 to 2006, he said that the Mountain Brook students engaged in wild partying, a lot of drinking, lots of room switching every night. He said, we know the Holiday Inn told them they weren't welcome back next year. He said, Natalie, we know she drank all day, every day. We have statements she started every morning with cocktails, so much drinking that Natalie didn't show up for the breakfast two mornings. And two of Natalie's classmates later said that the trip was kind of excessive. I do think that's a wild thing for the police commissioner to say. He could have yeah, just been I, like, yeah, she was drinking. I feel like, like, like the rest too, of them. though, he is um, maybe a little bit biased. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like I have no doubt there was probably Hates drinking. women. Yeah. And like, I just, I've added in the notes too. We aren't victim shaming. They weren't doing anything illegal. The legal drinking age there is 18. They were perfectly able to do this if they wanted to. And I have no doubt there was alcohol and stuff, but I feel like he is more like kind of shifting the blame with that. Um, he could have just left at, yeah, she was drinking with yeah. her friends. And like what you just read out is an actual quote. Like we didn't phrase that his yeah. phrase was wild partying they're not welcome back you know he he said all that so so much drinking she didn't show yeah. up for two breakfasts <laughs> maybe she I just wanted either. to have a sleep in yeah so yeah anyway fuck off so i feel like his is exaggerated probably um but i do have no doubt that there was some alcohol involved and partying involved I and mean, i just feel like he he's clearly showing his opinion which as a police commissioner maybe you shouldn't do also not for nothing my senior high school we didn't go to Aruba. We went to shitty seaside New Jersey, but <laughs> we all drank a lot. And as a senior in high school, I drank probably a good amount. So <laughs> let's like relax. So Natalie was last seen by her classmates on Monday, May 30th, 2005 at 1.30 a.m. She was last seen leaving the Ar- Arangistad Bar and Nightclub, Carlos and Charlie's with Joran Vandersloot, who was 17, as well as two of Joran's friends. They were brothers, 21-year-old Deepak Kalpo and 18-year-old Satish Kalpo. Natalie was scheduled to fly home later that day. She already packed her luggage and her passport was in her hotel room. When Natalie did not return to the hotel, her friends contacted Beth, her mother. Beth and Dave and some of their friends chartered a private plane that same day and flew to Aruba. 
she got the call and she knew Natalie was in trouble. Snap, you know, it's instant. Something is terribly wrong. I had to get to Aruba now. Beth immediately set off to get on a plane to Aruba. Some family men that I've, I've known for a long time and the woman that called me about that Natalie was missing decided to come on the plane too. We landed in Aruba on the same day I got the call. In my little simple mind, I was flying into an island with a few tiki torches and maybe some huts. And I was like, wow, it just seemed vast. Beth has come down with a bunch of people from Alabama and they arrange for the local Arubians that they meet at the airport to be their guides. And then they explained to us that um, this is, this is a, a case of a missing person. So then they said that we're gonna hire you guys. We want people that we can trust, that we've met, that can be with us the whole nine yards. We thought it was something to be just for a few hours. Beth is fielding calls from various people who were on the trip. And she's piecing together a timeline where Natalie was last seen, who she was with. We all pile into this van and we went to the last place that she was seen, Carliston Charlie's. Carlos and Charlie's was like any other club that you can go in there, you can dance, and you have shots, they have shows. You see everybody in Carlos and Charlie's. That was the club. The night that Natalie disappeared, I was at Carlos and Charlie's with a group, a group of friends, and these kids were all like 16, 17, 18 years old, and they were just jumping and singing and playing this Sweet Home Alabama over and over. Sweet home. Last anybody remembers, Natalie was seen driving off in a, in a vehicle with a young man. He seemed like a tourist. He seemed harmless. Everybody assumed that she was going to make it back to the Holiday Inn fine that night, and she just never showed up again. Four hours after they arrived on the island, Beth and Dave had found out the name and address for Yorin, and they took the details to the police. Beth said that Yorin's full name was given to her by the night manager at the Holiday Inn, who supposedly recognized him on a videotape. I feel like for the hotel manager to recognize you, you must be a creep who's yeah. always hanging around there or something. The Twitties, that's um, Natalie's mom and stepdad, and their friends went with police to Yorin's house to search for Natalie. Yorin initially denied knowing her name. He said that he and his friends took Natalie to the California Lighthouse area of Arashi Beach because she wanted to see the sharks. He said they dropped her off at the hotel at they dropped her off at the hotel around 2 a.m. I want to know what kind of sharks you can see at 1 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, right. <laughs> like even if you shine a light, you're probably not really going to see much. So Yeah, it's hard to see in the black mm. scary ocean. Finally get two Aruban police officials to accompany us to the Vandersloat home. I remember the police turning on their siren. Now, you've got an Aruban police car coming up to the Vandersloot home along with two van loads of very angry young Alabama parents. Yaron's father comes out. He starts to talk quietly with a couple of the Aruban officers while the Alabama people, the contingent, stands out by the van in the street. The gray Honda that Natalie was last seen getting into is parked outside the Vandersloot residence. And Deepak Calpo and Yaron Vandersloat are standing out in the gravel driveway. 
And your Ron says, yeah, okay, I was with her. You know, we fooled around a little. I dropped her back at the Holiday Inn. That's all we know. And then he describes, I don't even want to get it, but he, he graphically describes the sexual activity that he engaged in with her, okay? And that was just like over the top. The men that I was traveling with, they were all fathers. And you can imagine the tempers. And they start yelling. Tell us where she is. Come on, tell us where she is. Speaking and yelling, do it and stop, you know, just talk like normal people. This threatening and stuff like that, we're not used to that. Finally, Iran said, I'll show you. I'll show you where I dropped her off. So, Yoren agrees to take the whole group back to Natalie's hotel where he says he dropped her off. He says that she got out of the car and that she stumbled and that she hit her head and two security guards helped Natalie up. And he says those are the last two people that he left Natalie with. Yoren said that Natalie fell as she got out of the car and she refused his help. He said she stumbled a second time and was helped by a dark-colored man wearing a black t-shirt and carrying a radio. There's varying reports regarding the CCTV for the Holiday Inn. Some reports say that the cameras aren't working, and others just say that she wasn't seen on the footage. A huge search started on the island for Natalie. During the first days of the search, the Aruban government gave thousands of civil servants the day off to participate in the rescue effort. Aruban Banks raised $20,000 and provided other support to aid the volunteer search. The Royal Netherlands Air Force used three aircraft in the search. They also used satellite photos and compared them to recent photos of the area in an attempt to see if there was any like disturbed gravel, anything that looked like maybe a potential gravesite. The morning after Beth has this confrontation with Yaron and Deepak, she goes and tries to file a missing persons report with the local police. Their initial reaction is Natalie was not officially missing yet. The police tell me, that, you know, this happens a lot, so don't really worry about her too much. She'll show back up. Don't worry about it. Beth and the Alabama people, with the help of the local press, start to organize search parties, looking for anything, a piece of clothing. We all had to take turns to go to Aruba. You signed up for a shift, literally, because there was so much, there was so much going on. You know, everybody wanted to help, everybody. Early on, the government let every government employee off work. Could you imagine a whole country was out searching for her? But right from the start, the pace of the investigation was extremely frustrating. I don't think the Aruban authorities took this seriously enough, quickly enough. I assure you that every, every, every lead is being worked out. The Alabama group would go to all the Dutch bars. They would go to the casinos. They were just out looking to find Yaron. They just wanted to hassle him. We had to do something because it seemed like nothing was being done. It's necessary that you uh, let us do our work. The Aruba chief of police walks up to us and says, I don't want any cowboy stuff going on down here. We're the police, we'll handle it. They didn't like us, and we didn't like them. It was a marriage made in heaven. So the first arrests in Natalie's case came on June 5th, 2005. Police detained Nick John and Abraham Jones, who are former security guards from the nearby Allegro Hotel on suspicion of murder and kidnapping. The two men were apparently known for going to different hotels and picking up women. 
The evidence against them has never been made public, but the main source is believed to have been the statements made by Jorn and the Calpo brothers. Basically, probably have they were saying Natalie stumbled walking in and a guy with like a flashlight and stuff helped her. Um, Nick and Abraham were released without charge on June 13th. Then on June 9th, Jorn and the Kapol brothers were arrested on suspicion of the kidnapping and murder of Natalie. Reuben Law allows for investigators to make an arrest based on serious suspicion. So like we were saying, this case got very messy over the years. David Cruz, who is a spokesperson for the Reuben Minister of Justice, falsely indicated on June 11th, 2005, that Natalie was dead and that authorities knew the location of her body. He later retracted that statement and said that he had been a victim of a misinformation campaign. Happens to the best of us, I suppose. (laughs) On June 17th, a sixth person later identified as DJ Steve Gregory Crows was also arrested. The media was told that Crows was detained based on information from one of the other three detainees, so probably Yorin and his pals again. On June 22, 2005, a Reuben police detained Joran's father, Paulus Vandersloot, for questioning. Both Steve and Paulus were ordered to be released on June 26. So everyone's getting arrested right now. <sighs> arrested and released. So a little background on Joran is a good time to talk about him. We believe he comes from a fairly wealthy family. He was born on August 6, 1987, to Paulus Vandersloot, who is a lawyer, and Anita Vandersloot Hugen, who is an art teacher. In 1990, his family moved from the Dutch city Arnhem to Aruba, where he was an honor student at the International School of Aruba. Jorn was said to be a star to be a star soccer and tennis athlete at school, competing in doubles tennis with his father, and they played in like some tournaments and stuff like that. Big deal. If Natalie Holloway was someone who spent Saturday nights maybe with her mom and made cookies, Yaron Vandersloot was not someone who was making cookies with his mom and dad, if you know what I mean. Yaron Vandersloot was in the casinos. Yaron Vandersloot was at Carlos and Charlie's hitting on the American girls. In the video of Joran's 15th birthday, which was two years before Natalie disappeared, he is having a great time dancing with all the girls. He struck you as the type of kid who would hit on 10 women knowing that one would say yes, and the nine who said no, he didn't much care about. It's pretty clear that this is a guy who is not lacking in confidence. Okay, um, this poem is about some of the few memories I have from when I was still young. Yaron Vandersloot was a headstrong, free-willed young man who was accustomed to getting what he wanted. Back to the story. Around this time, Yorn and the brothers changed their stories again. They changed their stories many times. Mm, Many, many times. Yeah. They now said that Natalie and Yorin were dropped off at a beach near the Marriott Hotel. Yorin said he didn't hurt Natalie, but he did leave her alone on the beach. He gave another story around this time, basically saying that he, Yorin, was dropped off at his home and that Natalie was then driven off somewhere by the Calpo brothers. So Yorin seems to be pointing the finger at everyone. Whoever. He's just trying to get someone to believe one st- any story, one story that he says. Yeah. 
Um, the group appeared in court and the Calpo brothers were released on July 4th, but Yorin was held for an additional 60 days. Um, and we didn't, we didn't say at the start, but I feel like, cause I just assume most people know this, but if you are newer to this case, basically Yorin has been suspected of killing Natalie or being involved in Natalie's death since day one. Yeah. And it's been years. So Natalie's family first offered $175,000 reward for her safe return and donors added another $50,000 on top of that. By the two-month mark after her disappearance, the reward was at a million dollars for her safe return with a $100,000 reward being offered for anyone who could locate her remains. The reward for her remains would reach $250,000 by August 2005. So on August 26, 2005, the Calpo brothers were rearrested along with a new suspect named Freddie Arambatsis, who is 21. There doesn't seem to be much that ties Freddie to Natalie. His lawyer said he was suspected of taking photos of an underage girl and also having physical contact with the same person. Um, this, so he kind of doesn't really matter to the story, but just another person being arrested and released or questioned and released. On September 3rd, 2005, all four suspects, Yorin, Freddie, and the Calpos, were released on the condition that they remained available to the police. By September 14th, all restrictions on them were removed. So after this, Yorin started talking to the media. He gave an interview to Fox News in March 2006. He told the agency that Natalie wanted to have sex with him, but he didn't because he didn't have a condom. When, when they picked you up, uh, did you go straight from... Your home to Carl's and Charlie's? Um, when they picked us, we went straight, yeah, straight to Carl's and Charlie's. Were, when you arrived at Carl's and Charlie's, any idea about what time it is? Uh, it was probably, yeah, 12.15, I think. 12.30, maybe. How late does it stay open? That night it was open till 1 a.m. Is that usual? I mean, every... Uh... Every during weekdays it's open till 1 a.m., yeah. Oh, and were the, uh, were the girls from Mountain Brook already there? Uh, they were already there. I, I walked in, and I, when I walked in, I saw one of them on the left-hand side, and she just said, uh, she said hi, and uh, I said hi back. And uh, then I walked in with them, and uh, was gonna go to the bar with them and get a drink. And that's when, right when I walked in, I saw Natalie uh, was standing on the dance floor. She was, dan um, she was dancing, and she screamed at me uh, to go dance with her. She was dancing on the stage, there was like a podium there. Did she know your name? She knew you well enough to know your name at that point? No, I don't think she knew my name. She just uh, screamed to me to go dance with her. And uh, at that point, I didn't. I went to go get a drink with uh, Deepak and Satish. Where, the one that you sat next to that you thought was attractive at the casino, did you see her there? No, I saw one of her friends there. So she never appeared any place that you remember that night? No, maybe that I did see her, but I don't think I spoke to her. What, you went up to the bar and got a drink. What were you drinking? Uh, a yard is a, a drink you can get there. And uh, yeah, that's what we got. So that's drink number two separated by several hours. Yeah. Okay. Um, what, uh, what happened next with the... Uh, how um, so next, uh, we walked uh, down again to the stage and we were just looking at people... And the people were dancing on stage and then uh, again she said to me to, she told me to go dance with her and I said no <clears throat> and, uh, uh, sometimes yeah but not really dancing okay. really not really a dancing person and then uh, she came down uh, off the stage and uh, grabbed me by my hand and said come with me and she took me to the bar which is on the other sh on the left hand side and uh, she jumped on the she jumped on the bar so sitting on the bar Sitting or lying down? I'm sitting first, and then she said, oh, yeah, you're going to take a jelly shot off me. What is that? Uh, it's just something, uh, a jelly shot is what you put on your belly button, or a body shot, I mean. And uh, then you, you take it off, off of the belly button. And you did that? And I did that. What was that? What were you drinking then in the shot? Do you remember? I don't have no clue what it is. 
Uh, is there a way to describe her? I mean, whether she seemed or appeared to be, you know, drinking, she seemed to be drunk. Uh. Oh, well, she'd, she'd been drinking, but she wasn't drunk. I mean, she, she knew what she was doing. And, uh, yeah, all the people there were drinking as well. I mean, that's just, it's normal when you go out uh, and to have a drink with your friends. Any interest in her at that point? Uh, at that point, when, uh, when she grabbed my hand and took me to the bar, yeah. Um, so what happened next? Uh, so next, then, uh, she said, okay, so let's take an another shot, is what she told me. So she wanted to take a shot with me, but it was probably close to 1 a.m. there then, and that bar was closing. Uh, so I said, okay, well, we can go to the, the other bar. And then I asked her, what do you want to drink? And she's like, uh, whatever. So, uh, I, so she said, yeah, then she said, what do you suggest? And I said, uh, Bacardi, Bacardi 151, because that's a shot I, I normally take with my friends. And uh, we, we took a shot together. And uh, after that, we just uh, were talking a while. I, I saw Satish, and Satish had, um, said, uh, let's go. And then uh, Deepak, I don't know where he was. I don't, they didn't see him in Carson Charlie's after that. He also said that Natalie wanted him to stay on the beach with her, but he left because he had school in the morning. What a responsible lad. He said that Satish Kalpo picked him up at the beach at 3 a.m. and that they left Natalie on the beach. He said he was ashamed to have left her alone on the beach and that he lied at first because he was convinced that Natalie would just turn up safely soon. Police Commissioner Gerald Dompig would end up leaving the case. Before he did, he gave an interview to CBS, and he said that he didn't believe Natalie was murdered, but that she died from alcohol and or drug poisoning. He said, we, strong we feel strongly that she probably went into shock or something happened into shock or something happened to her system with all the alcohol, maybe on top of that, other drugs, which either she took or they gave her, and that she just collapsed. He so, was really sticking to the alcohol theory. Yeah, he, he really hated that she was drinking. He said that Aruba had spent 40% of their police budget on her case. He also said that there was evidence that Natalie had drugs in her possession. He really did not like this poor girl. Yeah, I guess he was probably a bit bitter that he had to spend all his time... You in know. the police budget. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Glad he's off the case. And they were, like, they were highly criticized, which they should have been because it was a very shoddy investigation. So he probably didn't take very kindly to that either. Yeah, well, shoddy investigation it was. In 2006, at Aruba's request, the Netherlands took over the investigation. A team of Dutch police started on the case in September 2006. In April 2007, Joran wrote a book titled De Zach Natalie Holloway, which means the case of Natalie Holloway. He apologized for his initial lies in the book, but maintained his innocence. Is that a book that you can literally just buy? I think so. Yeah. It must it's be. insane. Cases like this, it's insane where the murderer is like, I can profit off of this. <laughs> and he's done, he's tried to profit off of this multiple times. The book gets 3.8 out of 5. Like, is mm. it on Amazon? I'm just looking now to see if you can still buy it, but it doesn't, when you click on shopping on Google, it doesn't come up, but. Yeah, maybe, maybe they took it down. Yeah. What a dick. In the same year and month, a new search involving 20 investigators was started at Yorin's residence in Aruba. According to his father, quote, nothing suspicious was found, and all that was seized were diary entries of him and his wife and his personal computer, which was subsequently returned. The Calpos had their family residence searched in May 2007, and on November 21st, 2007, Yorin and the Calpo brothers were arrested again, this time on suspicion, on suspicion of manslaughter and causing serious bodily harm that resulted in Natalie's death. 
But a week later, on November 30th, the Calpo brothers were released and Yorin was released on December 7th. So was this the fourth time they've been arrested and released? <sighs> I've lost count. On December 18th, Prosecutor Hans Moos officially declared the case closed and that no charges would be filed due to lack of evidence. On January 31st, 2008, a Dutch crime reporter named Peter R. DeVries claimed that he had solved Natalie's case. He said that Yorin had confessed. There was hidden camera footage of Yorin who was smoking weed and said that he was with Natalie when she started seizing and she became unresponsive. Yorin said that he attempted to unsuccessfully revive her and then he disposed of her body. So another version. Yorin later said that he was telling the media what they wanted to hear and that he still denies any involvement in her being missing. Same day, the Aruba prosecutor's office announced that they were reopening her case. Yorin met with Aruban police on February 8th and said that he was high at the time of the videos and he reiterated that he had left Natalie alone and alive on the beach. November 24th, 2008, Yorin spoke to Fox News and this time he gave another version of the story. He said that he sold Natalie into sex slavery. He said that his father, Paulus, had paid off two police officers who had learned about the situation. Like, why is he just saying these things? Yeah, no. To the news. Fox News aired some of the audio said to be of Yorin and his father, in which they discussed Yorin's involvement in trafficking. In 2010, an American couple in Aruba were snorkeling and diving when they saw what they thought were human remains. Aruban authorities sent divers to investigate, but no remains were ever recovered. On March 29, 2010, Yorn contacted Beth Holloway's lawyer, John Q. Kelly, and offered to reveal the location of Natalie and to tell all regarding her death if he was given $250,000. Bold move. <laughs> Kelly told the FBI and they agreed to proceed with the deal. With the money to be paid in installments, Yorin had $15,000 wired to him on May 10th, and he also had $10,000 in cash delivered to him in Aruba. Yorin told the family, I wonder what the plan was there, because since the FBI was involved, were they like, we'll get this money back? Like, did Well, no, what I've also read is I was going to say when you'd finished speaking is that the money didn't act, because people were like criticizing the FBI, like, why are you wasting this money? And they said the money actually came from private donors. So I'm assuming Beth and whoever just put the money up in the hope that they would get some answers. So the money didn't actually come from the FBI and wasn't to be recovered, I guess. But even... Like in their minds, say they give him the money, he tells the truth. Wouldn't he just, if he was really telling the truth, wouldn't he just get arrested and they could like get the money back? Yeah, I don't know, I don't know what his end game was. Um, Yoren told the family that Natalie's remains are buried in a house. And this was untrue and it was proven that the house wasn't even built at the time that Natalie had vanished. When he was called out on the inconsistencies, Yoren admitted that he lied again. On June 3rd, Yorin was charged in the U.S. District Court of Northern Alabama with extortion and wire fraud. U.S. Attorney Joyce White Vance obtained an arrest warrant and transmitted it to Interpol. On June 30th, 2010, Yorin was indicted on those charges. During an interview with a Dutch newspaper, Vandersloot admits to extorting $25,000 from the parents of Natalie Holloway in exchange for the location of their daughter's body. When asked why, he says he did it because he wanted to get back at them, saying, quote, her parents have been making my life tough for years. When they offered to pay for the girl's location, I thought, why not? Holloway disappeared in May 2005 in Aruba, and Vandersloot was the prime suspect. Four months ago, he was caught during an FBI sting operation. 
He gave an agent posing as a family representative a location that later turned out to be false. He has since been indicted on extortion and wire fraud. So just to backtrack a little tiny bit from what we were, the kind of chronological timeline, just a little bit before this on May 30, 2010, which was five years to the actual day that Natalie vanished, a 21-year-old woman named Stephanie Flores Ramirez was reported missing from Lima in Peru. She had told her family that she was going to attend a poker tournament and that she'd be home after that. Her brother Enrique talked to CNN and he said, my father called me and said, Stephanie didn't come home, help me. So I went to the house and we started calling all the numbers of my sister's friends and then we called the police. So police looked at the CCTV from the hotel where the poker tournament had been held and they found footage of Stephanie sitting next to Yoren. Mm. Um, Enrique, who's her brother, said at first it was relief because I saw her and that gave me hope. The people at the hotel told us, yeah, she was with this guy. He seemed nice. He looked like Brad Pitt, which he he absolutely does not. not, But, like, he seems like I guess if you didn't know him – He still doesn't look like Brad Pitt. No, no, he doesn't look like Brad Pitt, but I guess he (laughs) looks relatively normal enough. Yeah. Hotel video shows Joran and Stephanie entering a hotel room together on May 30 at 5.16 a.m. local time. Three hours and 20 minutes later, Joran left the hotel by himself carrying a backpack. When he left, he told the staff not to bother his girl. Police didn't search the hotel room for three days, and when they did, they found Stephanie's lifeless and battered body. Police said that she'd been beaten to death with a tennis racket. They did an autopsy on her and they found that she didn't have sexual intercourse before her death and that she was not under the influence of enough alcohol to prevent her from resisting an attack. She suffered blunt force trauma to her head, which caused a brain hemorrhage, cranial fracture and a broken neck. She also suffered significant injuries to her face and showed signs of asphyxiation. They did find amphetamines in her system, but they couldn't decide or decipher if she took the drugs willingly or not. So all of that damage with a tennis racket, that is a very, very, very brutal beating. Stephanie's family is desperate. They do anything to try to track down her last steps. Who was she with? Where did she go? Anything. And then they get a break. Tuesday, uh, somebody tell us that Stephanie went to the casino The Flores family knows the people at the casino, so the casino folks allow them to look at the surveillance video. On this security video that is later released to the media, the family actually spots Stephanie. Tape by tape, camera by camera, they're able to follow her through the casino. She takes a seat next to what appears to be a young man. The two have some sort of a conversation. Then they see them leave together. So now they have what they believe to be an actual image of this man. They say, we've got a name for this kid. I went to the internet and I put that name in Google. She types in Joran Vandersloot. And what comes up is actually shocking. Hundreds and hundreds of articles articles about this man. He's the playboy suspect. 17-year-old Joran Vandersloot implicated in the disappearance of an American woman. The search for missing American teen Natalie Holloway. The disappearance of Natalie Holloway. From the island of Aruba exactly five years earlier. And now a name that made headlines five years ago is back in the news. Joran Vandersloot. Joran Vandersloot. Joran Vandersloot. Joran Vandersloot. 
So Yoran was arrested on June 3 in Chile and he was extradited to Peru on murder charges. On June 7, he told Peruvian police that he killed Stephanie because she accessed his laptop without his permission and found info that linked him to Natalie. It's like, why is he just throwing that name out there again? Like, <laughs> yeah. Do you think that's even true? I feel like no. No. I Like, essentially, they I went think to the she hotel. I just didn't want to have sex with him. Yeah. I Like, they went to the hotel room at 5 a.m. He left three hours later. I highly doubt that there was time in that time for her to get on his laptop and for her to find this information about Natalie. I feel like... He's yep, taunting agree. everyone again, just being like, oh, yeah. information he, about like Natalie. That is absolutely a lie. Yeah, he's just obsessed with throwing Natalie's name out there. Yeah. When police later searched his laptop, they found searches including relationship between the Peruvian and Chilean police, Chilean border pass, buses in Chile, and countries that do not extradite in Latin America. Hmm. So Yoran was charged with first-degree murder and robbery in Stephanie's case on June 11, 2010. So at this time, he again told officials he knew where Natalie's body was and that he would help a Reuben police to find her. Reuben and Peruvian authorities announced that they were going to be working together to get more information about Natalie. I just can't believe they gave this guy so much time over the years. Yep, oh, I know where she is now. I'll tell you now. It was just, and 10 times later. Yeah. So it didn't take him long, surprise, surprise, to renege again. And in September 2010, he spoke about the extortion plot against the Holloway family. He said, I wanted to get back at Natalie's family. Her parents have been making my life tough for five years. So around this time, Yoran's mother, Anna, spoke to the media. She said, I believe in karma. I believe very strongly. I believe if you do the things that you shouldn't do, that a lot of shit happens to you. He didn't want to listen to his parents. He didn't listen to me this last time. I tried to do my best. I don't think I could have done more. He's considered an adult right now. He has to do whatever he needs to do, and that is tell the truth. So she's kind of washed her hands of him, not surprisingly. Mm -hmm. On January 11th, 2012, Yoram pled guilty to Stephanie's murder and was sentenced to 28 years in prison. Six years after Natalie vanished, which was June 2011, her father Dave filed a petition in court to have her legally declared dead and Beth announced that she was going to oppose the petition. So this kind of went through the legal process for years, uh, 2011 and 2012, before finally there was a judge named Judge King and they ordered the decree Sorry, and they signed the order declaring that Natalie be declared dead. So this is kind of a little random side note. On the 4th of July 2014, Yoran mar married a Peruvian woman named Lady Figueroa. He had met her while she was selling goods inside the prison and she was seven months pregnant with his child at this time. There's actually a photo of the wedding on, I'll put it on the blog, but she's wearing like a white dress. It's, it's a proper wedding in the jail. So weird. <sighs> it's a bit reminds me a bit of um, Heather Mack in the in yeah. the Bali jail, yeah. On 28th of September 2014, Lady gave birth to a daughter named Dusha Trudy Vandersloot in Peru. After they got married, Lady spoke to the media and said that Yoran was gentle, sensitive, kind, and that he was no monster. He wrote her a letter offering to buy her, quote, your own house. Or oh, wait, better say our house. So he offered to buy her a house, apparently. With what money? Oh, the money he stole from the Holloways? Yeah. <laughs> In 2016, Dave Holloway hired a PI to look through all the evidence in the case again. The PI found an informant named Gabriel. Gabriel has said that he was roommates with one of Euron's close friends named John Ludwig. I know there's a lot of names, but this is kind of just an interesting piece. John apparently told Gabriel what had happened to Natalie. 
Gabriel spoke to Oxygen about what he says happened. He says that John allegedly helped Euron dig Natalie up and they smashed and cremated her bones in 2010. He said that Euron paid him $1,500 to help and that they mixed Natalie's remains with dog bones. Euron then paid a crematorium worker $200 to let them cremate, to let them cremate the dog remains. So Oxygen, in terms, of the, in terms of that Oxygen documentary, Natalie's mother actually sued them for $35 million. I watched this documentary like when it came out. I, do, I haven't seen it since then because I just never wanted to watch it again. Um, I remember thinking it was the weirdest documentary because they were acting like they were doing like, sting operations and tapping phones and really going to arrest people and solve the crime. I don't know. It just it felt like weird and sleazy to me. But so, yeah, Beth ended up suing Oxygen for $35 million. Um, she said the series was a pre-planned farce and a hoax. An article about it says, in the suit filed in federal court in Alabama on Friday, Elizabeth Holloway says, not only did the six-part series contain gruesome depictions of Natalie's death and desecration that were lies, but that the defendants obtained the elder Holloway's DNA under false pretenses. According to the suit, Oxygen and Brian Graydon Media also named a defendant in the suit quote, made the knowingly false declaration that they had discovered how Natalie died, where she was buried, and that her body was exhumed five years after her death, and that her remains were then desecrated. However, the suit contends rather than being an unscripted and true crime documentary, it was actually preconceived and written in advance. Um, The lawsuit says, in truth, despite their representations to Beth, in the series and in the media, defendants knew prior to filming their series that they would not find Natalie because the series was preconceived. It was not a real-time investigation discovering new facts. Um, it says the defendant's misconduct, the suit says, raised Beth's desperate hopes for the discovery of her daughter. Defendant's misconduct truly made Beth believe that she would finally be able to lay Natalie to rest. So I think basically what happened was they already had planned out this like whole documentary and how this quote story was gonna go and everyone knew what was going on but beth and uh natalie stanley didn't so in the documentary they're asking them for dna and they're saying they found like these potential remains and things like that but really they knew all along that that wasn't true but they were making beth and the family believe that like oh my god we found something like we need your dna so basically just lying to their face and getting their hopes up when all along they knew all this was bullshit Um, Oxygen then made a statement saying, we were disappointed to learn of the complaint. It's an accurate depiction of how the series was produced, and we want to reiterate our deep compassion and sympathy for all members of the Holloway family. The documentary series was developed by a production company in close collaboration with Dave Holloway and his longtime private investigator. The show followed his continued search to find answers about his daughter, Natalie, from a lead he received. We hoped, along with Mr. Holloway, that the information was going to provide closure. So the the dad, as we said, they were divorced, was also involved in this. I, I don't know. The whole it, thing was very weird. It does seem like there's bad, bad blood between Beth and Dave. Like, they are definitely not on the same page for a lot of things regarding Natalie. So yeah, I feel like that played a part in that, too. Um, so the last thing I could find on it is that it was set to go to trial in 2020. But as we know, a lot of things got delayed. And I literally can't find anything else about it after that. I can't find if it was settled. I can't find if it was rescheduled. I have no idea. All the court documents are online, but yeah, there, does, there isn't an update that we can see about the status of that trial. 
Yes, I don't know if it just delayed or if it was dropped. So just as another kind of what is going on in this story, in so who we just spoke about was John who apparently helped Yoren dig up Natalie and they cremated her bones. In yeah. 2018, John was killed while he was attempting to kidnap a woman. This <laughs> info about that incident is from The Independent. So it's a Northport police spokesman, Josh Taylor, said, as she's getting out of the car, there he is. He wanted the keys to the car. What he had plans for after that is yet to be determined, but it was certainly a very scary situation. So the woman fought back and grabbed John's knife and stabbed him several times. He ran off bleeding heavily, but was found a few blocks later, sorry, a few blocks away and later died and that the woman faced no charges. Said for every ounce of evidence we have so far, she was a victim in this case. So I feel like this kind of gives you an idea of the people, type of people that Joran was associating with, someone who's abusive and, you know, acts like that towards women. It's shocking. But also not shocking, like, how many scumbags are connected to each other. Because, of course, scumbags are going to be friends with other scumbags. But just there's so many random people that are connected to Yorin that are also trying to insert themselves in this case for some reason that are all dirtbags. They're all trash, horrible people. So in January this year, 2023, we're at now. So still, as the time recording, Natalie is still missing. But so we've kind of jumped a little bit. There were things that happened over the years, but it was nothing major. But in January 2023... Euron had 18 years added on to his sentence after he trafficked cocaine in prison. The trafficking happened in August 2020. Euron had set up an operation in the prison where a family member of another prisoner used sugar beets to smuggle cocaine into the prison. Euron proceeded to deal the cocaine inside the prison as well as setting up a trafficking network by forwarding cocaine from the prison to other destinations, which I can't he just believe. Like, he just can't <laughs> stop. Like, stop, Euron. So he was eventually found out by prison officials, which I'm not surprised because I feel like all of this would have been pretty obvious. But He's so dumb. Um, so this information, though, about the Peruvian system and about Euron's sentence is from CNN. It says, because Peruvian law prohibits prison sentences from exceeding a total of 35 years unless the person has been given a life sentence, Euron is currently scheduled from release on or about June 10, 2045, which is 35 years after his original arrest in Peru. So even though they added on this to his, um, you know, murder charge or, yeah, murder charge, he is still not serving that whole entire or is not due to serve that whole entire time anyway. Like I understand what they're saying, but once you re- reach the max, you're like, well, I could just keep committing crimes because it's it's not gonna matter. Yeah. Right? Why don't they just like, translate just it to out. a life sentence then? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit it's I agree. Ridiculous. So in March 2023, it was revealed that Euron had filed for divorce from his wife, Lady. According to his attorney, he has now seen a woman called Eva, who was, quote, a prettier and younger girlfriend. (laughs) Um, Eva has been accused of smuggling Euron drugs in jail. So I don't know, still going on. Uh, I don't understand how he gets all these girls. How is he meeting all these girls? (laughs) From jail also. It seems like just a one big party in in the jail. And it was publicly known that he was suspected to have killed Natalie or have been involved in that. So it's not like that was a secret. Everyone's thought that forever. He's in jail. It's the worst. It just reminds me so much of the Heather Mack thing where she was carrying on relationships in jail, like going out to bars and restaurants while she was in jail. It blows my mind. So on June 8th, 2023, so not long ago, Euron was extradited from Peru to the USA He was taken to Birmingham, Alabama, where he was arraigned in federal court on one charge of extortion and one count of wire fraud against 
Beth Holloway, who pled not guilty to each charge. These charges are from the extortion that we previously discussed, which happened in 2010. So on October 18, 2023, Euron confessed again to killing Natalie. He gave details this time about how he allegedly did it. I'll read out his the transcript of his confession. We'll put it up online too. But basically, I'll just leave out. He says a lot of ums and ahs. Every and other buts. word. <laughs> if you think I say um or uh or like a lot, <laughs> he is literally uh every other word. So I will paraphrase it a little bit. Like the main context is there, but I'll leave out those type of pauses and hesitations, hopefully. <laughs> he said that she asked to go back to the hotel, but I just tried to get dropped off a little bit further away so we could walk back to hotel and I might still get a chance to be with her. And then the other person says, okay. And Yoren says, that's what I was hoping for. Then he's asked what happened. And Yoren says, Deepak dropped me off at another place, a little right of the Marriott Hotel known as the Fisherman's Huts. This place is not so far from the next hotel is the Marriott. Basically, he just says they got dropped off and then it's the Holiday Inn. And then he says, we walked along the beach. And then he's asked, so Deepak and Satish, who are the Kalpo brothers, did they get out, come with you, what happens? And Yoren says, no, they leave. They go back to their home. I assume they go back to their home. They got in the car and they leave. I'm actually with Natalie walking along the beach. I find a space before we get to the Marriott where I lay her down. We lay down in the stand and start kissing. I start, it goes, I start, I get her to kiss me again. We start kissing each other. I start feeling her up and she tells me no. She tell me she tells me she doesn't want me to feel her up. I insist. I keep feeling her up either way. She needs me. She ends up needing me in the crotch. When she needs me in the crotch, I get up and I kick her extremely hard in the face. She's laying down unconscious, probably even dead, but definitely unconscious. And I see right next to her, there's a huge cinder block laying on the beach. Then he's asked, when you say cinder block, I'm looking at the walls. Is it like those? So I'm assuming everyone knows what a cinder block is. It's like a big concrete brick type thing. Mm -hmm. And Yoren says, yep, exact same cinder blocks. I see a huge cinder block laying on the beach. I take it and I smash her head in with it completely. Her face basically collapses in. Even though it's dark, I can see her face is collapsed. I don't know what to do. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I decide to take her and put her into the ocean. So I grab her and I half pull and half walk with her into the ocean. I push her off up to my knees in the ocean and I push her into the sea and then I get out and I walk home. Uh, I'm actually with uh, I'm actually with uh, with Natalie walking along the beach. Uh, I find a space uh, before we get to the before we get to the Marriott Hotel where I lay her down. We lay down together in the sand and uh, we start kissing each other. I start I get her to kiss me again. We start kissing each other. And uh, I start fielding her up again, and she tells me no. She tells me she doesn't want me to to feel her up. Uh, I insist. I keep feeling her up either way. Um, And uh, she knees me. uh, She ends up kneeing me in the crotch. Uh, When she knees me in the crotch, uh, I get up uh, on the beach, and I kick her extremely hard in, in the face. Um, yeah, she's laying down, uh, unconscious, possibly even, uh, even dead, but definitely unconscious. And, uh, I see, uh, right next to her, there's a, there's a huge, uh, cinder block laying on the beach. When you say cinder block, uh, looking at the walls of this, uh, place, is it like those? The exact same cinder blocks. I see a, a huge cinder block laying on the on the beach uh, 
I take this and uh, yeah, I, I, I smash her head in with it completely. Uh, yeah, her face basically, you know, uh, collapses in. Even though it's dark, I can see her face is collapsed in. Um, uh, afterwards, I don't exactly know uh, what, uh, you know, I'm, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. Uh, and I um <coughs> I decide to, to take her and uh, uh, to put her into the ocean. So I grab her and I... I half uh, half pull and half walk with her into the ocean. Um, I uh, I push her off. Uh, I walk up uh, up to about my knees into the ocean and I push her off into into the into the into the sea. So that's the extent of his confession. We've had a lot of comments after. So we posted that on our Instagram and we had a lot of comments from people who said they don't believe it. Beth, who's obviously Natalie's mother, does seem to believe it. She said it's over. Joram van der Sloot is no longer a suspect in my daughter's murder. He is the killer. She said after 18 years, Natalie's case is solved. He gave a proffer in which he finally confessed to killing Natalie. So if you're not sure what a proffer is, it's basically when a defendant offers information about a crime as part of a plea deal. There's an article just from today, actually, from AL.com, and it's about the proffer session. It says the proffer session took place at the Shelby County Jail where he's been housed since he was here in Alabama. The setting was a conference room. On the government side, you had the case agents from Birmingham, Miami, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and on the defense side, Van der Sloot had two of his attorneys from Alabama and he also had Dutch attorneys there representing him for that proffer. It says the proffer lasted just over three hours with a couple of short breaks in there. And this is obviously the interview that was given to AL.com. So the person says, as far as his demeanor, I would say it was a professional business setting and both parties came in there understanding what the goal of the day was, which was for him to share the narrative of 2005 and 2010 with us. It was a business-like approach. So after that, Joran did speak in the court about finding God. He said, I'm not the same person today as I was then. I have given my heart to Jesus Christ. The worst. So Natalie's younger sister, Caitlin, told the New York Post that she isn't convinced Joran has changed. She said he's a monster and even laying eyes on him made me feel sick inside. He did apologize and he said something along the lines that he gave himself to God and then he's a Christian, that he's a changed man, but I really don't think that's true. I don't think it was a sincere apology considering all the damage he has done. I think it was some BS. Agreed. Natalie's mother, Matt, sorry, Natalie's brother, Matt, told Court TV too that he wasn't convinced. He said he's such a liar. This, this, the past, his whole life, that's all he is. He's just a psychopathic liar. So I take it lightly. Natalie's father, Dave, called you an evil personified in a victim, uh, sorry, a victim impact statement. Uh, sorry, I just spelled Natalie wrong. I'm just changing it. <laughs> he said, despite everything what he'd done to us, he's not sorry for what he did. He expressed no remorse, regret, or even compassion. He's evil personified. So the FBI were interviewed about Yoren's confession and they were asked, are you confident he told the truth? And they said, yes. Part of the proffer was ensuring that he satisfied the US Attorney's Office, the FBI and the Holloway family. And by the time we left that proffer, we were pretty satisfied that we received the information that we needed for that to receive for that proffer to be executed. We are confident that the information he provided in the proffer was truthful. I've seen a lot of people comment too about the beach in Aruba where he said he dumped the body. They're like, there's no waves. There is nothing, like it wouldn't be carried out. 
And that's why a lot of people don't believe the story because they believe that if he did dump her in the ocean, she probably would have washed up based on the conditions there. Yeah. Um, That seems to be what a lot of people are basing their um, judgment on. I was suspicious about his, some parts of it. I think some parts of it are true. But again, the ocean part is weird because he's like, oh, I just like walked out a little and she's gone. But apparently two days after the confession, he was taken into a small room to do a polygraph test, a lie detector test, to see if he was telling the truth about all that. So it says he was hooked up to the polygraph. Um, He was asked yes or no questions based on his confession that was given two days before, and it was determined that he was not lying. A legal source who is familiar with the procedure said he passed the polygraph with flying colors. It was enough to satisfy everyone that he was telling the truth. So I don't I mean, they were yes or no questions. So maybe maybe they were like, did you put her body in the ocean? He says yes. Because maybe they did did put her body in the ocean, but then... Not the whole story. Him and his friends were like, oh my God, her body's going to wash up. Let's do something else. So I guess there could still be holes in the story. I was thinking though, I do feel like the cinder block... And the bludgeoning is probably true because, yeah. well, for one, I'm sure they were like, did you use a cinder block? Did you bludgeon her in the face? And he was like, yes, yes. Because also one of the big theories put out there by the police commissioner himself was that she drank too much or was doing drugs. It would have looked much better for Yorin to have said that she overdosed and he got scared and got rid of her body versus bludgeoning her in the face with a cinder block. So I do believe him on that one. Yeah, I feel like this is the most likely scenario. Um, Like I'm looking at a photo now of the Holiday Inn and kind of that beach. It does look very protected. There's kind of a jetty with boats parked. Like, you know, they're not going to park boats in an area where it generally gets rough, I I would assume. Um, But I feel like it wouldn't be that hard to walk out, to even pull her out further than what he said he did. You know, it's the ocean, essentially, if you get to a point she could be dragged out. So, Yeah, there's a chance, like, even if you're swimming in the ocean as an alive person who can swim, the ocean can still suck you right out and people yeah. drown. So, And even, like, I always know. hear people arguing, not not even so much in this case, but they're like, well, if they're in the ocean, they'd be found. But absolutely not always the case. It depends on currents. It depends on animals. It depends on, you know, if she had blood, like, from the sounds of it, her injuries were very graphic. It sounds like, you know, that could it could be explained that there wouldn't be a whole lot left to find maybe even um remember shad gaspard that he was a former wwe wrestler he was swimming with his son and tried to save his son from a rip current and he was ripped out to sea drowned but it took them days and days and days to find his body and they knew where he was and where he went missing so the ocean this is why i always say the ocean is scary yeah, and it's unpredictable. Like even you can try and guess based on currents and where people may have ended up, but there's so many variables that, you know, you can't ever really pinpoint it. Yeah, but also like we were saying, maybe more did happen after that. Maybe there's more to the story. I don't know. Another thing people kept saying was if you bludgeoned her with a cinder block on the beach, wouldn't there be a lot of blood? But I almost feel like the beach would be one of the easier spots to clean up blood or cover it up, like in the sand. Hmm. What do you think? It would be an easy way to cover it up. Is that what you mean? Is that like, what I saying? feel like with the sand, you just kind of mix 
yeah. sand around or exactly and like you know it's not like even a kitchen if, or a floor no and then even with rain and things like that like yeah I agree sand would be a hard well it would be a hard sur- like a hard surface to preserve evidence on like it would be very I agree very easy to disturb and mix it up and disperse it is the word I'm looking for I feel like Yorin could have literally went picked up the bloody sand threw it into the ocean or just yeah. mixed it around with other sand and it would have been much less noticeable. Like even when you think about building a sandcastle, it takes you 10 seconds. It would, yeah, be a very easy way to just dispose of body matter. And they probably weren't, no one even probably really knew to even look around that beach for a few days at least. Like no. how long did it take them to even bring up the beach? And was it even the same beach? Who knows? And how big is the beach? Like even, you know, the stretch of beach, there's no way that, you know, if he had, if there was a small patch of blood from her, it would be almost impossible to find unless you knew exactly where he'd been sitting and yeah, those type of variables. Yeah. So, I mean, I do think it can be, the story can seem a little sketchy, but. And you also have to remember too, like I have no doubt he knows what happened to Natalie, but this was a long time ago now. Mm-hmm. This is a many, many years. So, um. Is, is his memory changed based on what he wants to believe? Like there's a whole bunch of reasons why the story could be slightly different to what actually happened after this amount of time. Yeah. So US federal judge Anna Manasco sentenced Yoren to 20 years for the extortion and wire fraud charges. She said, I have considered your confession to the brutal murder of Natalie Holloway. You have brutally murdered in separate incidents two beautiful women who refused your sexual advances. Yoran's 20-year U.S. federal sentence will be served concurrently with his sentence in Peru, which basically means that he will likely not serve any time in the U.S. After his latest confession, the Aruba Public Prosecutor's Office has not ruled out that he could face more legal action. The spokesperson for them, a woman named Anne Angelo, told CNN, the Public Prosecutor's Office will reiterate once more that Natalie's case remains an open investigation in Aruba. And Aruban authorities have requested that the U.S. Department of Justice give all so give all official court documents and transcripts and all documents related to the investigation which they will review before deciding on the procedural steps to be taken. In Aruba, the statute of limitations for homicide is 12 years. When asked, though, whether they might be able to waive that or it might not apply to Yoran, the spokesperson said they cannot answer the question unequivocally. She said it may depend on several factors within the investigation. Bear in mind that we don't know yet that what is in the official court documents related to the investigation. Therefore, there is no simple yes or no answer at this moment. So that is it up to the end of October 2023 for Natalie's case. Um, I feel like there is probably no chance they will ever find her. Maybe one day they'll come across a bone. I, I just feel after this amount of time, it's very unlikely. In saying that, there is a case here recently where they've found a bone of someone who drowned 50 years ago. So maybe, but I feel like the ocean is a different beast. Chances are slim. Yeah, very, very slim. And it would literally be like a needle in an enormous haystack trying to find remains of her after this amount of time. Yeah. I I do agree with what you said. I feel like the confession is probably mostly true. Um, The one bit maybe I do question is if that is what actually happened to her body after he disposed of it. Um, Or if there was more after the story. Yeah. I feel like his confession about, you know, what he what happened when they were kissing and then she denied him. I feel like obviously that was a very high level of what happened. I Like they didn't go into much detail about that. It was just a, like the actual confession itself is basically a page long and that's with all the ums and ahs. So it wasn't a very detailed confession. It was just a high level overview of what he allegedly did to her. 
Yeah. I'd be more suspicious of the confession if it made him look less bad or not good somehow. But basically saying that you bludgeoned her in the face with a cinder block because she didn't want to have sex with you makes you look pretty fucking shitty, which we all suspected he was trash. Yeah. Anyways, more than trash. Just one other interesting part to this story that I remember kind of been a bit fascinated with over the years is that for a period of time Beth Holloway dated John Ramsey who's John Benet Ramsey's father um like at the time it was it was a while ago I think it was around like it was like mid 2000s maybe like 2010 around then but his attorney a person named Lynn Wood had to release a statement about it because I guess everyone was like wow how have these people found each other it said they share common interests and concerns related to their children, particularly with respect to the actions of law enforcement and the media in response to those tragic losses. So I guess they, you know, they would have had a lot in common. They have both suffered the loss of a child, a tragic unsolved loss of a child even, but just an interesting connection that was made. Yeah, I I always forget about that too. And whenever it's brought up again, I'm like, that is so strange. <laughs> very random. I get, yeah. Like I get what they're saying. Like obviously it's a very unique situation they could probably both find comfort in each other for understanding what it's like to go through something like this but it's just they're both such like massive cases yeah very high profile cases yeah one note that i wrote down while we were talking was i just wonder if yorin had even more victims maybe not necessarily murder but sexual assault i would not be shocked at all anything like that because seems like the people at the hotels knew who he was he lived in aruba which is basically a tourist vacation area and he had money as well like i feel like he came from a relatively affluent family who had ways of covering things up like money talks his dad seems like a real jerk as well his dad died by playing tennis i believe like had a heart attack while playing tennis so yeah like i also agree i would think that he has been responsible for many many sexual assaults rapes he definitely preyed on all the tourists. Yeah. Um, kind of ties into what we've said about vacation nightmares in a way. Like these young tourist girls, they go out there, they're trying to have fun, they're drinking. In a more vulnerable situation, like they, you know, yeah. They're just trying to make the best of the time that they have there. And then you meet these criminals like Yorin, who basically this is their life of manipulating and exploiting and abusing young girls that are trying to have fun obviously you can probably tell by this episode that beth holiday has been natalie's biggest advocate she's still in in the media this to this day about her daughter there's an article with people where she spoke about her last memory of natalie she said that they were running through everything that natalie needed for the trip her passport her cash her bathing suit and beth asked her if she's got everything natalie said yes mom i've good i've got everything i need and she said Beth kissed her daughter goodbye outside a friend's house and Natalie faded into the darkness as she walked from the car to the doorstep. Beth said then her friend opened the door and I watched Natalie's silhouette disappear in the light and the door was closed and then it was dark again. I just can't even imagine having to endure that for all these years, um, having to try and work with someone like Yoren to get the truth. It would just be horrific on top of dealing with the grief of losing your child. Yeah, and I still am thinking about how I hate what the – police commissioner said about her and i'm sure that drove other people to be like oh she was drinking she drank a lot because i'm sure i'm not gonna say everyone but most people especially girls can think of times where they were natalie you were you just graduated high school you're 
or anything big event, you're out having fun, you maybe made the mistake of drinking a little too much, but most of us are lucky to not run into people like Yorin or his scumbag friends and still make it home relatively safe. But unfortunately, sometimes there are people like Yorin out there that are basically career criminals at this. And it's disgusting to think that someone can feel so entitled to sex and to women that you're willing to bludgeon a girl in the face with a cinder block, be a different girl with a tennis racket over sex. Like, and even to think, like, I just feel like his arrogance showed when he just left the hotel and left Stephanie's body in there. And like, what does he think? I just feel like he thought after Natalie he was untouchable. Yeah. And he kept bringing her name up, like taunting them. So I don't believe that he has changed as a person. Maybe he is trying to just make himself look better, but he's a scumbag. He will always be a scumbag. I don't care if he thinks he found Jesus. He can die a slow, painful death because he's disgusting. And I'm sure that he has many more, at least, sexual assault victims, even maybe more murder victims. Who knows? I was just reading that October 21st this year, so just last week, would have been Natalie's 37th birthday. Sad. And one more thing about Yorn. (laughs) Not only all that, he then tried to profit from writing a book and exploiting this poor girl's family. (laughs) Scum. And I'll leave it at that because that could just, <laughs> it makes me so annoyed for obvious reasons. But And even that he's living still his best life in jail, marrying, divorcing, Yeah, drugs. what the fuck? No wonder he probably doesn't want to go to an American prison. He'd rather yeah, stay send in him over Peru, here. Peru prison paradise. So messed up. Mm. But, and it's sad because her family, even though I guess maybe they can feel like they have some closure but i bet it still doesn't feel solved to them because they yeah he passed the lie detector test but they have yeah nothing there's no they don't have her body there's no like hard facts really they just have to move on i guess yeah. which how can you even it's <sighs> very sad for them what they've gone through all these years i guess that is all i don't even think anything else will come of this unless Unless. like he's done it in the past unless he changes his confession um i think the next thing that we might hear is when he passes away in jail like i just feel like in terms of natalie's case in terms of natalie's case it's very very unlikely the only things i could think would be a change of confession or that they find some of her remains um change of confession may be likely but the remains i feel unlikely yeah agreed um all right well that is it for natalie's case everything will be on the blog about this at truecrimesocietyblog.com we will post anything else that comes from this on our instagram at true crime society we post about all the current cases going on lots going on these past couple weeks with a lot of big cases so if you want to follow what's going on follow us there true crime society our personal accounts mine is steph some underscore olivia's is tcs olivia see what we're up to we do have a patreon now so if you want to listen to the episodes ad free and get them a little bit earlier plus we do weekly bonus episodes and we also have some fun chats on patreon so you could check us out there we link it it's you could just search us on patreon 
if you haven't left us a review or a nice comment or anything like that on Spotify and wherever you listen, do that. And also subscribe, follow, all those things. But that is it. And I hope that you guys have a lovely week and stay safe. And thank you guys for listening. Peace out. See ya. Thank you.